So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday the 13th, by the way, if you didn't know that already. So it's time to watch those scary movies if you want to. This is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 191. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm glad that you're here. If you were here last Friday, I'm sorry I didn't do a video because I was down in Sevierville, Tennessee at the largest beekeepers conference in North America. That's right, Hive Life 2023. It was a lot of fun. Sorry for the blackout if you were looking for me on YouTube and I didn't do anything. I was down there walking around. In fact, Friday, so a week ago today, I had a sit down with uh, Mr. Ed, uh, Jeff Horshoff, and uh, Randy McCaffrey, which is, he's known as Dirt Rooster on YouTube. And we just did something called cut ups and cutouts. And uh, so we could kind of mix in some fun and humor with uh, hopefully in the end, maybe in between things, uh, some useful information in there. The crowd was great. People were laughing. It was a fantastic gathering. I'm sure you're tired of hearing about it. For those of you who didn't make it, I'm sorry. It was a good time. Things went off well. Uh, I also gave a presentation on Saturday in a huge uh, gathering hall there. And uh, everything was great. So anyway, you might be wondering, look at the opening. What a slap in the face. Come back to the state of Pennsylvania. Now we have snow everywhere. 25 degrees Fahrenheit, which is minus 4 Celsius. And uh, these are questions that are carried over from last week in some cases, and the rest were posted since I've been back. It feels like I just got back. So anyway, uh, let's start right off. If you want to know what we're going to talk about, please look down in the video description. All the topics are there in order, and there are some links today that will give you some further reading for those who want to understand better some of the topics that we're covering. My very first question comes from Lorraine in Canada. We harvested honey at the end of September. On the refractometer, it read 18% water. The honey is under our dining room table in food grade ice cream containers from an ice cream store down the street. So we were starting to sell honey, and when I opened the second container, I noticed it smelled slightly different than the first container. She doesn't go on to describe what that smell was, just different. And I decided to check the honey with the refractometer, and it read 16. What would make it change from 18 down to 16 in closed containers? What should we do? We're not going to sell any more honey until I find a solution. We have two five-gallon containers of honey to deal with. Do you have a solution? Right now, the jugs are on the table, opened and covered with paper towels to keep dust out. A metal rack that can let air flow through, and it is holding the towels in place. This is our first year trying to sell honey. Is it ruined? If so, what can I do with it? Here's the great news. Uh, Lorraine also wrote again later, thinking they might have misunderstood the differences in water percentages. So here's the problem. If it went from 18 down to 16, that's actually good news. So it's not a problem at all. So my recommendation is, of course, and I've already written back because I didn't want to wait on this, cover it right back up and put it right back in storage. Although I do recommend that when you have your honey in storage in buckets, that you get that into bottles, into jars as quickly as possible, or this may happen crystallize or set honey. And uh, <clears throat> so the good news is it dropped in moisture content. The risk would be if it gained moisture. So also be careful about putting towels and things like that on there. 
Uh, you could contribute lint and other particulates into your honey. And then when you do that, crystals have something to attach themselves to. So we want to keep the particles, uh, other than what's already in the honey, out. So that's the good news. You can have honey, by the way, that is too low a water percentage. And that's because for those that are testing and grading and competing with honey, uh, they think that if the moisture content's too low, that it's been processed, possibly overheated. And that comes from honey judges. That was one of the fun things about uh, hive life down in Tennessee is the judges, I don't know if they did this last year, but this year they took the stage and explained a lot of their process. And uh, this was interesting too. I know I'm a little off topic, but I want to say this. They had more entries for honey and honey products and bee-related products, comb, everything else, including artwork and stuff like that. They had the largest collection and the largest contributor list that that honey judge, and he's a national honey judge, had seen in over 10 years. So people were there with all of their best stuff. But he also explained some things, you know, they're looking for particles and dirty jars and things like that. It was a real education. But anyway, the good news for Lorraine is it's not a problem at all. And she already knows that now, so she's not sitting waiting, you know, for that response. But uh, it's the higher moisture content that's the threat. And I'd be interested in what the smell difference was. But honey does go through changes, gradual transitions as it sits in storage. Uh, but I think she's, the good news is no problem, no concerns. Absolutely, sell your honey. Uh, question number two comes from Tom Shelton, Washington. <clears throat> Good afternoon. I'm having trouble exchanging Hive Live fondant without losing a handful of bees. Trying to line up the hole on the fondant package with the hole in the inner cover leaves bees very upset. I can't believe I don't have a... Yeah, I do. So here's the fondant, any fondant that we're talking about here, by the way. But this is specifically Hive Life Fondant. Hate to mention uh, Hive Life again, but the owners of this company were there. Dara Scott, the man himself, they were there with their products and the liquid, of course, and then the fondant. It was great to meet them in person. But uh, here's the thing. The way I do it, and that's what's being described here, you have an inner cover. I think we know that this year and henceforth I'll be using insulated inner covers, but this is the inner cover on your beehive. And here's the hole. So this little oval opening, which really is designed to include a clip for a bee escape. But what happens is, cut the little hole in the fondant, lay it on here, and of course your bees come up through the hole. This provides an air seal so that the warm air doesn't escape out of the hive in the winter time. So that's really valuable to the bees. And we can see through here that they're consuming fondant. But now you go to doing your inspection and what's in here, a bunch of bees are in here, and you have to pull this off and put the new one on. And I think somebody else asked recently too, can bees sting you in winter? They sure can, although they're a little slow to do it. They're not as mobile as they otherwise would be, but they can sting. If a bee is alive and it's a worker, she can sting you. So anyway, so when you pull this off, you may have bees in the packet. And if you wanna limit the number of bees that will fly out, I recommend a really flexible um, spatula. They sell these really thin, flexible spatulas for pancakes and things like that. You can take that. I'm just going to use this as an example. This is a piece of copper. 
But if you had something that's flat like this, you can just lift it up and you can see under it. So you just push this underneath, cover the hole, lift off your fondant. This will have some beads in it. Put your new fondant pack on, center it as much as you can. Pull your piece of sheet metal out or your um, griddle flipper, whatever you happen to have. And then you'll line up your hole and be able to feed the bees again. So a bunch of them won't fly out. Now what do you do with the bees that are in the fondant pack that you took away? This is where my little bee vat comes into play. But you have to get them back down inside the hive. Let's face a rough reality sometimes for backyards beekeepers. We don't want to kill bees, right? And I kind of think that's part of the problem here is we're trying to keep all our bees alive. Some people really get upset if a single bee is killed. But if it's warm enough, you can get those bees uh, into the bee vac, the little portable vacuums, and then dump them right on the landing board so that they can scoot back inside the hive. And uh, that will give them every chance to recover. So that's what I recommend for that. And, uh, but don't panic. Sometimes you're going to lose a bee or two and just do the best you can, always. Question number three comes from Pete, New Hampshire. Is it okay to feed fondant made, from, made for baking to your bees in the wintertime? Okay, so here's the thing. Um, fondant can be expensive, by the way, that you buy from bakeries and things like that. Fondant for people does differ from the fondant that we put on our beehives. So, for example, the fondant that I just showed you from Hive Alive. These get confused now because we're talking about Hive Life and everything. But this fondant, everybody now is familiar with it. Hive Alive fondant. And uh, I read articles about the fondant that people are making and confectioners fondant and things like that. And they were saying that it's it's very that to buy your own fondant was very expensive. They said it was five dollars a pound. This is two and a half pounds, and it's right around five dollars. So it's actually half the price of what gets quoted. But they are different, and I'd like to explain why. So some people are purists, and it doesn't hurt to be a purist when it comes to honeybees and feeding them. I don't make my own fondant because it involves cooking and parameters and potential for caramelization and things like that. And then, of course, creating something that's potentially toxic for your bees. But what's the difference? So I looked up the contents of fondant, and that, like the top-ranked fondants that you're buying, let's say, on Amazon. First thing I noticed in the list is gelatin. Gelatin, by the way, is an animal product. So they use it to gel the fondant, and that's not something that your bees would normally ever consume. So you're already putting something in there that your bees don't need and wouldn't eat on their own. Water, that's normal. Lemon juice, pretty normal. Glucose, there's glycerin, again. So we wouldn't have glycerin in the fondant that we're feeding to our bees. And uh, powdered sugar. Powdered sugar is not pure sugar. It's got additives in it to keep it in its powdered form so it doesn't clump. So there are things, if you're just buying fondant that's intended for human consumption, that aren't necessarily awesome for your honeybees. So, but if you do follow a fondant recipe, make sure, but of course the question is, can I just buy fondant that's made for baking? There may be things in that that aren't necessarily awesome for your bees. Remember that something is better than nothing, however, and fondant is an emergency resource for your bees just to keep them alive and we're coming up on those critical months ahead here, February, March. Those are the number one loss areas for your bees because by then they're up against uh, the finishing uh, storage of their honey that they've already got. So they're finishing up their reserves 
and they need that emergency feed, and that's what the fondant is to uh, to be there for, so that they have something to consume just to keep them alive. So it's that, just to keep them alive, I would of course highly recommend Hive Alive fondant. Uh, and then of course, there are a bunch of people on YouTube that will teach you how to make your own fondant if you're really handy in the kitchen and you think you can keep that candy thermometer at the exact temperatures that you need to keep it at without risking caramelization, you're going to keep stirring it and all the other details. Um, then you'll look at the products you control the ingredients that you're going to put in there. Uh, also, sometimes people when they're putting in vinegar, I highly recommend that you use apple cider vinegar because sometimes the white vinegar, the regular vinegar is not intended for consumption at all. It's actually a cleaning product. So be very careful when you're looking at ingredients and things like that that you're going to provide to feed your bees. I don't know what the total potential detriment is to that. And of course, it depends upon how much of that composes the diet that the bees inside the hive are consuming. And remember, your fondant's an energy source. So happy medium. If you don't have the skills to really make a fondant and you don't want to just put dry sugar in there, you can create a sugar brick. There is condensation in there. They will be able to consume the sugar brick. And then you don't have to worry about all the other additives and things that go into it. So I would say, on the face of it, fondant designed for human consumption, I would not buy and put on my beehive. I would get fondant intended for honeybees and uh, for the purest, make your own. If you really, if you really want to make sure that we're not giving them something that bees would not eat. <clears throat> Next one comes from Mark from Franklin, Massachusetts. I'm a third-year beekeeper. I started in 2021 with a single flow hive, and I'm in the process of adding a second flow hive this spring. I also belong to our local beekeeping club, Norfolk County Beekeepers Association, where I've taken um, a couple of courses to learn as much as I can, and I noticed in one of your videos that you mentioned that a full flow hive frame of honey can produce two quarts of honey. I have found that to be true if the frame is mostly full and capped. But I also noticed last summer that my two outermost frames, which were completely full and capped, produced 2.23, two and two thirds quarts, or eight pounds of honey each. And I was removing the flow frames last summer to inspect and realized the frames which appeared to be full were, un were usually not completely full as if the bees were leaving cells available in the center for brood. Just wanted to share my observation. I also created a couple of YouTube videos and so on. <clears throat> Here's what happens. Let me get the flow frame. So we're talking about, Mark says that uh, they did produce the honey that they're rated for. This will produce half a gallon of honey. And that's what it's full. In fact, the older they get, the more honey gets stored in them because the, the face of them gets extended out a little bit, so each cell becomes even deeper. But if you look, it, this depends on how your hive is configured. It doesn't matter just for flow frames in particular. It can be regular frames as well because what the bees are doing in the summertime and as the year progresses, remember they've stored their honey up above and there would be times where they would fill these. So let's say these are the center two or three frames and when you pull these out at the end of the year, you may see an arc up in here. And, and as Mark is guessing here, are they leaving these cells open for brood? 
what they're really doing is sometimes when there's a dearth at the end of the year, extended rainy periods and stuff like that, the clusters under here, and they actually arc up into here and start to consume some of the honey out of that. So that's why if we had weight scales and things like that, we would see during periods of rain and extended uh, inability for the bees to go out and forage, you would see a, a weight loss. And that's because they start to consume and metabolize the honey in the center. So they're not really setting it up for brood. They're just consuming that. And because it's late in the season, they tend to not replenish that at the end of the year. So I just want to refresh everyone that my configuration is at least a deep brood box, which is a combination of brood and, of course, pollen stored and honey stores beginning. The next box up becomes a full box of honey. And if they have a slight arc in the second box, that's okay. But I want to have a clear bridge of nothing but capped honey directly above the cluster before I put on the flow super on top. So the flow super, in my case, is always the second or even the third box, depending on how far up the brood goes into the lower boxes, because I want that clear honey bridge so that uh, because I'm not using queen excluders. And if you're using queen excluders, you would still see that arc because you're going to go up and consume those resources if this is the second box. So that's what that is. It's not that they're preparing for brood up there. They're just, they consume their resources. That's my take. It, you know, <clears throat> I'm not saying they can't or wouldn't ever potentially run brood up a little higher later in the year, especially, but, uh, my guess is, just based on the years that I've been doing this, that that's going to be just them consuming honey in that arc. And then if we get a late nectar flow and things pick up again, they'll backfill that. And then those are the uncapped open cells of uh, nectar and honey that you see later in the year when you pull off your flow supers. And when winter comes, we do take off all of those flow frames and they all go into storage. And they all get extracted and cleaned up. Question number four. Comes from Eric, Newdale, Idaho. I live in cold, rural Idaho, but I have an insulated hive. Despite below freezing temperatures outside, my broodminder is registering consistent interval hive temperatures at 78 degrees Fahrenheit. At those temperatures, am I correct in assuming that the bees would be comfortably, comfortably, comfortably <laughs> meandering around? inside to the point that it would be possible to perform an effective midwinter OA vaporization treatment. So OA is oxalic acid. Would this be a good idea to help drop any potential mite load in the hive to further help them through the winter or should I wait a few more months until temperatures outside warm up even farther? Well this depends on how invasive your method for delivering oxalic acid is. I wouldn't be doing a dribble uh, that time of year, if it's vaporization, this really comes into play with hive history. So how did that hive look at the end of summer? You know, so August and September, what were the mite counts? Uh, what kind of treatments did you do then? What kind of mite fall did you have then? What are other colonies in your apiary looking like as far as mite drops? And this is also where having some kind of removable bottom board or tray is very helpful. That's because you can clean out the tray, put it back in, leave it for a week or so, and see just if you have any mites even that are dropping off of your bees that late in the year. And also, I don't know what the treatment history has been for this. I am not a fan of just treating whenever the opportunity to treat presents itself. Uh, 
we don't want to overtreat the colony. There's no reason to do it. If you have manageable mite numbers already, and of course going into fall is when these numbers tend to increase, that's your treatment cycle. Now we've got brood developing. So depending on where you are, this is a very cold climate, but you have a very insulated hive, and some of the more insulated hives tend to brood up or even never go completely broodless. So it's the low brood period that we're trying to hit them with a late season. So for us here, end of November, 1st of December, that time has passed for us. So me personally, what would I be doing to my hives? If I had an opportunity, so let's say next week it hits 50 by some miracle, uh, would I go out there and hit them with an oxalic acid vaporization treatment? I would not. Now, would I pull trays and look to see what's kind of going on down there? If I pulled trays or pulled an insert of some kind and I could see, wow, they really, you know, they dropped 60 mites in a box and a half uh, over a two-week period or something like that. Hmm, I think I might hit those. See, so we need to know kind of what the mite drop-off currently is, kind of guesstimating at this time of year what the population of mites are in there because we can't do mite counts right now, but we can pull trays and do bottom boards and things like that because they're inserts that don't really disrupt your bees in winter. This is a time of year where I really want to disrupt the bees as little as possible. Your oxalic acid vaporization treatment, if you use that in there this time of year, any time of year really, the bees kind of move all over the hive. They scatter. Now they understand it's a well-insulated hive. You have 78 degrees in there. I don't know where this measurement was taken. If that's very near the cluster where the brood is, um, I don't see any reason to unnecessarily spread your bees out all over by introducing oxalic acid when we can wait until the spring season arrives and then we can really get a handle on what the mite counts are coming out in the spring. And then you could do a series if you needed to, case by case, hive by hive. But just doing it because the opportunity is there and we think that uh, it's warm enough for that without knowing mite loads, I'm not a fan of that. <clears throat> Question number five. This comes from Jim, Burlington Flats, New York. This question might be a little long. I just read the bee culture document, page 14 of bee culture in December of 2022. And uh, anyway, the free PDF is very comprehensive and covers all the mite control methods. Worth the read. They're big advocates of changing your mite control on a regular basis to avoid resistance building against the treatment. They're not big fans of OA, giving it only moderate effectiveness for most periods of the year. You mentioned before that there is no evidence that OA is causing any resistance. So my question is, why put the bees through the trauma of doing several sugar powder or alcohol wash mite counts when you could just do a relatively non-traumatic OA vaporization once a week for four weeks to cover the uh, brood cap cycle, then wait a month and repeat during the bee non-dormant periods. As I thought about it, doing a test several times during the season is more than likely going to require treatments three to four times anyway. Why not just do the treatment? and watch for mite drops on the sticky board beneath. If you get a diminishing mite count, mission accomplished. If you're not seeing any mites or are very low, no harm, no foul. What's the weakness in this approach? It's gonna go back to what I said to the previous person. 
If your mite loads don't warrant it, don't use the treatment. Now, and I know because we all have beekeeping members, we all have friends who follow all the advice, which is to cycle through and rotate treatments so that they don't build up a resistance. And uh, it is true that the mites, the varroa destructor mites, uh, have not demonstrated resistance to oxalic acid vaporization. So the oxalic acid is proving effective. Now, when they say, as quoted here, because I didn't read the article, but uh, that it has moderate effectiveness. I would like to say that for 10 years I was treatment free. I used all the IPM methods. And <clears throat> when it comes to using oxalic acid vaporization partnered with integrated pest management methods and protocols, I've gotten my mites under control. So moderate effectiveness. Here's what we know about oxalic acid vaporization. Regardless if you have oxalic acid dripper, drip, or if you're uh, using the vaporization, or if you're spritzing it, it's a package or something like that. Um, the results can vary depending on the climate that you're in. Everyone may not have the exact same results. What I've noticed too is a lot of people just treat, treat, treat. And they don't really take the time to count what the drop is. I also, I have colonies right now that are untreated. Zero oxalic acid vaporization treatments. And if each colony, if I have a problemed colony that's getting a high mite count, they get it. They get the oxalic acid vaporization treatment. And now that I have that instant VAP, that battery-powered, portable, temperature-controlled system, the best oxalic acid vaporization delivery system I've ever seen, instant vape, I-N-S-T-A-N-T-V-A-P. It comes from Laura B's here in the United States. They're the only distributor for it. Um, it's convenient. Convenience means that you'll use it. In other words, uh, when you need it, it's ready to go. You don't have to run a bunch of power lines out. You don't have to break out a big deep cell battery and clip everything onto that and use your pans and things like that. It's expensive, but it's effective and it uses DeWalt batteries. That's what I have available. So the moment that I have a colony that has a high mite load, I do a series of treatments. I'm not doing them a week apart. I'm doing them five days apart. Now, I'm also going to put a link down for those of you who want to know in the video description. There were studies done. Uh, one particular study that I just found in response to this question, University of Bologna, University of Bologna, anyway, uh, eight successive years of treatment with oxalic acid. Remember that the United States was late to the game. We've been treating with oxalic acid, but our history with that is very recent, unless you were going against the law, which I know never happens with beekeepers. But uh, they proved that even after eight successive years, following the protocols that they've established, that the varrodestructor mites were still susceptible to being killed or defeated in their ability to feed on your bees with oxalic acid vaporization. So that link will be down there. And that's a recent study, you know, relatively recent, 2016, December. So that's down there, and for me, it holds. Now, here's what I did. I was ready for backup treatments. In other words, if I could not get my varroa destructor mites under control with oxalic acid vaporization, I was ready to use Formic Pro. Formic Pro now, I had two cases of it, exceeded its shelf life. It's of no use to me. 
I don't believe in rotating to different treatment materials. Uh, for example, Formic Pro is going to kill a bunch of your bees. It's no question about it. Even when it works perfectly within the temperature parameters and everything else, it's going to kill a bunch of your bees. That's why it can only be used if you have a large population and a strong colony. Well, we know that some of the colonies that we keep are smaller. Backyard beekeepers have nucleus hives, for example. You're not going to put a big pack of Formic Pro into a small nucleus hive. Uh, you, or you can have a heavy impact on it. Where oxalic acid vaporization, I do not have to worry about a bunch of dead bees in front of the hive, which is very traumatic for a bunch of backyard beekeepers. So how many years have I been keeping bees? Since 2006. One year early on, I lost all my bees because my hives blew over and ended up in snow. It wasn't because of management or being overrun by Varroa or anything like that. It was weather and the fact that all the boxes broke apart and I had all my bees exposed and I wasn't home to take care of them. So I've never had a total loss of my backyard apiary. And uh, so this all comes into play. It's all these things together, taking advantage of brood breaks, monitoring your mites, knowing which ones uh, might be coming, might be becoming a mite bomb. And now after uh, Dr. Thomas Seeley's study and release of his information on Darwinian beekeeping, I haven't had to do this yet. But if I get a colony that has so many mites in it and I can't get those mites under control and the genetics are so poor that they can't manage the mites, the colony will be euthanized. Because I don't want to spread those mites to other beekeepers in my area. So there's some responsibility we have all the way around the block. Know the mite loads. Treat them when they get high, find a treatment that works, which can even include, and I have this on my website, which is thewaytobe.org. It's my queen isolation method. And this was also, this is being covered. Everybody has their method for caging a queen, creating an artificial brood break. We know that uh, now the term is the dispersal phase for the mites, which is when they're out of the cells and spreading around and hanging onto the bodies of your bees. It used to be the phoretic phase, which means they're exposed and susceptible to the oxalic acid vapor and oxalic acid settling in all those surfaces. So by caging your queen, in my case, I do it for 14 days. When you do that, you make sure that every mite's exposed and therefore available to treatment. And therefore, the efficacy is beyond 96% if done right. So... It's not worth just treating and treating. You have to know, you have to have a plan, and you really should um, not just treat prophylactically. You should not just, because the opportunity is here, let's just give them a hit. Uh, I think we should follow the regimen and make sure that the numbers drop and that we have them under control before you back off on your treatment, and then try to let the bees manage as much as they possibly can. And then, of course, we keep records of each colony that demonstrates the ability to resist the mites. Now, that kind of feels like an uphill climb. That's because not everyone is doing the same thing. I'm not geographically isolated from other beekeepers. I don't know what their practices are. I don't know what they're treating their bees with. Bees abscond. Bees uh, depart their colonies and drift to other hives. Uh, hives that are dying can get robbed out. Hives that are being robbed out by healthy, strong colonies can suddenly explode with mites because the bees that are in those colonies are dying out. They're few and far between, 
and the robber bees that visit them pick up varroa striker mites and of course bring them home and then we have foundress mites that take over and start to feed and reproduce inside your hive and uh, so there are a lot of things that go on that actually happened to bob benny he had uh, a couple of years ago an out yard a sizable out yard that they could not find varroa striker mites in out of the blue they ended up with a whole bunch of mites and they were offering up those hives for university studies and all of a sudden uh, they got mite counts off the chart and it turned out of course it was because of a nearby bee yard that uh, was not being maintained in other words uh, the mites were just having a free-for-all they were expanding and of course the domino effect they came and infected the otherwise pristine uh, yard of bees so we are all kind of at the mercy of one another when it comes to how we're treating and managing and controlling and what we're aware of and what our steps are. And then, of course, the genetics that we use because I let my bees produce drones. I let the drones fly because this is my game. I want them to go out and mate with every other queen that they can find in spring because I want my genetics out there because I know I'm being responsible and that my bees are gentle and they have all the qualities that I am pursuing when it comes to managing my honeybees. I'm doing this on such a small scale that this is really, you know, a challenge and, and maybe it's a feel-good thing that I'm doing because unless I can get this ripple effect to where maybe their bees become like my bees and then they extend their drones out further and now we're several miles out, kind of fanning in every direction, if we can kind of get a friendly takeover through genetics of the surrounding bees. They'll do well in winter. They will not attack everyone when you walk through your apiary. They will demonstrate decent resistance to mites and then require very little treatment. And that's why it's really important to uh, be friends as much as you can with your adjacent beekeepers. I have uh, beekeepers that are near me that have never bought bees, never bought in packages or anything else, and they collect swarms. So I hope the swarms they collect were mine. So this is, you can be treatment free. You just need to know what's going on. But uh, anyway, where they say that uh, <clears throat> you could just treat your bees all the time, uh, I would not. I would treat as needed and continue to hopefully keep it down. And uh, oxalic acid vaporization works the way we know it works. We count the mites. And I've never used anything else. That's the bottom line too. I've never gone beyond oxalic acid as a treatment if I'm going to treat with anything to control my mites and I have more bees than I ever wanted. My target size backyard apiary is 10 hives. That's expanding. You have more than 20. Uh, I will be adding more hives to my observation hive building this year and uh, I'm gaining bees, I'm not losing them. So something I'm doing must be working. So we'll go on to question number six. This comes from John, Annapolis, Maryland, where the United States Naval Academy is located. I use a rapid round feeder to feed granulated sugar. Should or can I add pollen patties? Okay, and of course that's Annapolis, Maryland different climate. And so I realize that people that are listening to this may be in other parts of the United States or other parts of the world. The rapid round feeder. So here's what I'll share is, of course, how I manage my own bees. Where do I put my pollen patties? I don't. So I don't feed pollen patties ever. And that's because 
When the time of year comes around for the bees to get pollen from the environment, they find it in the environment. The, the decent warm days that show up, they're, they're going to get tree pollen early in the year. And uh, it's just an exciting moment when you see them bringing pollen in. And the reason I don't put pollen patties in is, let's answer this question. Would I put it in the wrapped around feeder, which sits on top of the inner cover, and then the bees go up in there and they have to access it that way? I actually would not. Uh, although if I did put pollen patties on, it would be uh, global patties ranked really high in Randy Oliver's studies. And global patties makes patties for hive alive as well. So they have the hive alive um, patties that have pollen in them. So protein patties, pollen patties, these are differences. If it just has protein in it, it may be something like ultra bee that uh, does not actually have pollen in it, but a protein that could help your bees. Uh, so it's a, it's a replacement for the protein because when you buy pollen and you put that in your hives to kick off brood in spring, you may not know what the source of the pollen is because they get answers to questions about what kind of pollen's in that? What kind of pollen sources are, is that sunflower pollen? What is it? Uh, but the answer I get is California pollen. Well, does that mean any flowering source in the state of California? And so I never got answers regarding, and that was from Hive Alive or anyone else who produces the pollen patties. They'll just say the state that it came from, but I don't know the source of the pollen. I do not put it in my hives. But also if you're in a warmer climate and you put those pollen patties up inside your rapid round, uh, you're providing kind of a hiding place that your bees don't police very well. And uh, you could have small hive beetles up there and stuff like that feeding on your pollen patties. Not saying it will happen. I'm just saying that if you're going to put pollen patties on, they should be down lower under your insulated inner cover or your inner cover, whatever kind it is. And it should be above the brood. And then the bees have to deal with it. So that's the other part of it. Are my bees really hungry for the pollen patties? Oh, look at them go. Look at them consume that pollen patty. This happens a lot. But one thing I've learned about honeybees, if you put something inside the hive that they don't want there, they appear to eat it. Because what they're doing is they're chewing it apart in little bits and pieces so they can get it out of there. Uh, that's why your pollen patty paper disappears. Pollen patty paper. Sometimes uh, people put wax paper on it and things like that because it has to hold the pollen patty together. We don't want it to dry out and be ruined. And then of course, bees remove stuff from their hive when they can, so when they can fly, they might just be chewing it to get it out of there. They may not be consuming it. So, and this is why the studies are important. What bees are gonna consume the pollen patties? Where does the pollen and the resources that are in those patties, where does it show up? How do scientists figure that out? Well, they dissect the bees. They find out what's in the bee gut. They also find out if it makes its way into the nurse bees themselves. And then because the nurses are feeding what? They're not just feeding brood, they're feeding the queen. So also these pollen patties, these protein patties, those resources end up in the mid-gut of your queen too, if the bees are actually metabolizing it. That's why these studies about the pollen patties that you're choosing are so important because you want one that actually ends up being consumed and metabolized by your bees. So global patties, safe bet, that's happening. Um, and that's because thanks again to Scientific Beekeeping by Randy Oliver. So, I would not put it in a tray or some kind of feeder that was not down below and in the nice warm area where the cluster actually is if you want them to have maximum use of it. <clears throat>
So I would keep the sugar up there in your rapid round feeder if that's what you have and to keep the pollen patty out of it. That's actually the last question for today. So we're just shooting the breeze right now. And uh, there's one thing that was fun about the Hive Life Conference, uh, getting to meet the people. So from all the different, you know, strong microbials, everybody was there. Best for bees, all the new stuff was coming out. If you didn't see it already, I'll put a link down below. I did a video over two hours of interviewing uh, the vendors that were there and showing the products that they brought. And I tried to give some diversity. So these weren't necessarily just things that, you know, I would want. If I noticed something that was new and unique and different and kind of looked cool, uh, I went over and talked to those people and, and made a video about it and showed the components and let them explain how things should work. And uh, one of the things that uh, was really interesting, I forgot the name of the company, but they're from Israel and they have a beehive that's designed as an educational tool and they're going to be doing an Indiegogo campaign on it. And uh, it was all laser cut components and then it had a 180 degree cylindrical uh, kind of dome on it, right? So it was barrel shaped and it was like a barrel laying on its side and it had clear lucite so that you could actually see inside the full length and then it had an insulated cover that goes on over that. So now is that practical for your, your backyard bee operation in my opinion? No, not really. However, if you like teaching about bees, if you want your students to be able to see bees in a unique configuration different from a standard observation hive, here is the type of observation hive that's really shaped like a barrel. It's on its side. They proved it in a kibbutz in Israel. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, but I've been there and I went to a kibbutz. I like how uh, they distribute kind of who has what job and some people are raising honeybees. Others might be raising chickens. All this communal way of contributing resources to the people that live there. And the guys were very interesting uh, in the way they demonstrated this. They showed videos of it working. That's something that I want to add to my education building. So if you've got some kind of setup, that was a very unique thing that doesn't have, you know, a really broad application if you're into honey harvesting and things like that. But if you're into observing bees, unique approach to that. So the other thing is, by the way, and I was talking to the owner of BeeSmart Designs, Clifford. And uh, of course, you know, the insulated inner covers. I use them and I ask him, what's your top selling thing right now? And it's definitely the insulated inner covers and what he calls the duo, which is the also the outside cover. Uh, but it, this was interesting because this is your dead bee scraper that goes for about five bucks from betterbee.com. I'm sure it sells through other sources too. But this is plastic and we have kind of our thoughts about plastic and how durable and strong it is. And one of the things that was really funny about it is... Uh, he was talking about how tough the plastics are that they use. And I know some people are really against plastic no matter what it is. But this has a scraper on the end and I use it to scrape out inner covers. I also pull the core flute out. And I use it to scrape off propolis and droppings and stuff like that and push it back in. So we're aware of mites and things like that. He grabbed this thing and he bent it around and he did that. <laughs> so I thought... That's tough. It really is tough. I thought this thing would snap and splinter and slap you in the face. This is also a great uh, defensive tool if you're attacked by shrews and things like that. But uh, that was fun. 
to see kind of a, a stress test on what was being done there. And they had some really good handles, things like that. I hope you'll watch the video. But I went shopping too. My wife did not uh, do a very good job of keeping an eye on me and keeping me from buying things. And at the very end of my video, this is something that I really liked. So I'm telling you about it now because uh, I think it's fun. It's affordable. So that's the other thing. I know people get upset because I buy things that, that cost a pile of money and you're not going to see a return on your investment. Here's something that's actually affordable and it works really well. And I loved the video they had. I met the owners. This is called the Bee Buffet. So this thing opens up. It has a little insert in here that you can put. And we talked about pollen or, you know, if you wanted to put some kind of solid feed in here or fondant or anything like that, because this goes into the center and this goes on your inner cover and this slides down inside and it serves as a placeholder. So where does this thing go? I'm so not organized here. But anyway, so your inner cover. And of course, I'm using insulated inner covers now, but this was really fun to me. And I'm so glad I stopped to talk to them. See the shape of the hole in the bottom of it? It matches the inner cover hole here. The bee buffet. And so we already know when we use a rapid round, for example, we have to put the cover on because we don't want the bees to just go everywhere. So here's the cover for it. So this shows the trough, kind of like a racetrack, and it's very well configured. I don't know if you can see the... I'm going to do more about these in spring because I got a bunch of them. In fact, I was on their website this morning trying to order a bunch more because I was afraid if I mentioned them, they might get out of stock. And I wanted a bunch of them because these are also going to be my open feeders this year. If you've looked at my videos for years, I've used those yellow quart containers with the black feeder stations. The bees don't drown in them. And those are what I use for all my studies. I use them for water studies, for salt, showing preferences the bees have for feeding stimulants and things like that. Uh, and I have a bunch of those that are brand new still in the box, so I'm probably going to still use them. But if I did not already own them, I would be using these exclusively. And here's why. This fits uh, your quart mason jars, so smallmouth mason jars. By the way, I should mention, I'm getting nothing from this company for mentioning this. This is just something I got personally excited about. <clears throat> and you know, that's reinforced when you see a product that you like, and then you also like the people that are manufacturing it and selling it, and these are made in the United States, so it's a product of the United States. But your mason jar lid for your small mouth goes in here and you invert the jar, of course, right on it. And then they, and they provide this with it. So this is the large mouth mason jar. So I can put a half gallon syrup, invert it, put it right in here. And then I can leave this cover off and I can observe the bees feeding it. And of course we have the glass jar so then we can see the liquid going down. But inside your inner cover, inside uh, your feeder shim then you just put this on here so now the buffet is completely enclosed this shows the space it would be occupied by the cover and even while you're changing it out so you pull this off and then uh, there's a tiny hole right here the bees can't get out and into this area even when you pull it out for cleaning or changing your jars or swapping things out so i have to say in the affordable line of things um, things that are available to consumers that are something that's really useful, 
You can use them for water stations too. So here's why I'm telling it to you now, because a lot of us are gonna to start to see warmer weather very soon. I highly recommend, you don't have to use this, but this just happens to be something that I was very impressed by at Hive Life. But um, you wanna set out water stations early in the year. When your bees start to forage, their memories are as long as the bees live, and not just that, they show one another where these sources of water and resources are. So things like this, setting up a water station in spring is very important because we want them to know the location of fresh water. And also for those who are adding, you know, the mineral to the water and things like that. So if you're using pink Himalayan salts, or if you want to use Morton sea salt and things like that, offer that in addition to fresh water, not in place of. And then you'll find that your bees will consistently go to these locations for their water because bees are economists. They are going to go where they can economize their movements and get as much of the resources as they can in the shortest amount of time and get back to the hive to do it. Water bees are your oldest bees in the colony. So this is something <clears throat> that I'm definitely recommending uh, as your open feeder and also for those that want to put syrup inside uh, the hives in spring or to kick off a a new nuke or something like that. So your nucleus hives. This is extremely well made. It's very well thought out. It's called the Bee Buffet. And I'm going to give you a link to the company. I got on there and ordered seven more this morning. My wife is probably watching this. But anyway, this is a product there. I think they're $14 a piece. This is something you're gonna buy and use uh, that's not gonna wear out. So this was a great product that I saw there. There were so many things going on, so many vendors. There was stuff I looked at that were in the thousands of dollars, of course. Went to Hillco and looked at their extractors and I spent way more for my extractor. So that'll teach you. For those of you who didn't make it, uh, if you're interested at all in going to a conference, Hive Life would be the place to go because if you are setting up a sideliner job or sideliner uh, beekeeping operation and you drove a truck to something like that, you would more than make up for the cost of your travel, the tickets and everything else in the savings that you would get when you buy your equipment there. Everything that you could have wanted in beekeeping was already there, including a mobile pollinator building uh, building. It's a trailer that had a whole bunch of hives in it. There was a couple that was new to it that they just built a prototype and they have one in service and they brought one in there. So they're thinking ahead. And this is something that somebody asked me. They came up and said, Fred, what are you going to change um, knowing the climate is becoming so variable that the weather conditions are so unpredictable? Now I kind of, this is this is funny because when I picked a place to live uh, before I moved here, I actually looked at uh, anti-terrorism um, target lists, terrorist target lists and stuff like that in the United States. I looked at weather patterns. Now I'm in a snow belt here, but uh, we're in pretty stable weather overall. Now, people that have the ability to, this, I'm kind of scattered in my conversation here a little bit, but there were people when I was in San Diego that lived on boats. And I always thought, wow, when the weather kicks up and stuff like that, 
They got special leave to get in their boats and take them up the coast. What if your beehives were on a truck? Now this is different from migratory pollination services and things like that because those trucks are loaded to transport, to get your bees to a certain spot, unload, spread them out, and then let the bees hopefully survive wherever they're being staged. This trailer was designed to be the full-time uh, home for the bees. So then of course, if you had to, if you had some big storm coming in and you had to evacuate, you would hook up your truck to that and drive your bees to a completely different place. And they're actually in their hives that they're, they're functioning out of. And the entrances were all identified. So that was just another thing that was kind of curious and neat probably not affordable to the backyard beekeeper, but they're thinking ahead that uh, when weather conditions and extremes are bad, that they could move their entire apiary on a trailer uh, to a different location, and then they're just there. So there's no loading and unloading. It's all there. They just open the entrances, and they're getting in and out. So uh, interesting model. Great stuff to talk to people. And I wanted to thank uh, Cayman Reynolds. Here's another thing. We pick on Cayman Reynolds a little bit and tease him. Someone wrote on one of my videos, why is everybody down on Cayman Reynolds? We're not down on Cayman Reynolds. Everybody loves him. He is the reason we have the Hive Life Conference. Uh, he loves a good joke. He likes to tease people and he likes to pick on people. And so if you tease about people being there for reasons other than to see Cayman Reynolds, it's all meant for fun. And uh, we're just having a good time and uh, Cayman is not offended. So I hope that people can appreciate it's just friendly ribbing. Uh, so if you've never been to a conference, that's the one to go to. It really is. Everything is there. Education, all the speakers that were supposed to be there were there. I'm not going to put myself at the top of the list there. Obviously, my presentation was geared towards backyard beekeepers. You know, I shared some of my pictures, some behaviors I've observed and talked about uh, different things I've learned over the last few years that help us manipulate bees on a very small scale. Uh, that's my sweet spot where I like to work. So, um, revolutionaryhives.com is where these bee buffets are sold. And again, I'm not compensated. If you want to tell them that I sent you there, go ahead. You will pay the same as everybody else. But I'm happy to have them know that I sent you their way. They're great people. Uh, just everybody there. All the vendors were great. Everybody wants to sell stuff and wants to show you what they're doing, what they're developing. And uh, it's a good time. So I hope you're planning to stage your water stations for spring because primacy works. If they discover your neighbor's swimming pool first or a bird bath or hummingbird feeders and stuff like that, they will continue to go to those unless we give them options and give them those options early. So thanks for watching me today. I hope you're having a fantastic Friday and I hope your weekend is going to be warmer than mine. But for now, uh, at least we can plan and still do some shopping, I hope, in preparation for the coming spring. So thanks for being here. I wish you all the best with your honeybees. Thanks for watching.